Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Malted Muse podcast. Well, here's a confession for everybody. Any of the regular listeners will know that I quite often talk about technical problems that I have. Of course, the reality is some of those technical problems is to do with poor circuitry within my own brain. It's to do with me making stupid human error mistakes. As time's gone by in my life, I've actually come to accept that that's going to happen. And a lot of the time, I try to take precautions. Now, because of that, When I go to whiskey festivals or when I'm interviewing people, when I'm wanting to record something, as much as I can, I use more than one device. I have a backup device as well. And that is why in some episodes, when there's more than one interview, the quality, the audio quality can be different. Sometimes I will use one device and it picks it up really well, but then I'll have a problem with it and have to go to a backup device where the quality isn't so good. Now this is what happened at Wee Dram Fest, and I've done two episodes about Wee Dram Fest this year, and some of the interviews there, some of the chats that I had, the audio quality wasn't so good. Because, no, I can't say it's a technical problem. I'm at a whiskey festival, I've had a few drams, I'm handling technology, technology's never good in my hands, And occasionally I make mistakes, I press the wrong button and it doesn't always work. But I have a backup device so I can take it off of there. But even with two devices going, sometimes I still happen to make mistakes. And this is what happened at Wee Dram Fest. Not so much a mistake, but one of the interviews got lost. But I found it again. And it would seem a shame to waste it. It's not a particularly long interview. So I thought it'd be nice to actually play it for you now. Now, before I play it, there is mention of a distillery. The distillery is Imperial. And I've, I've got funny feelings about Imperial. Um, not specifically about that distillery itself, but the whole, the whole idea of mothballed and closed distilleries where the whiskey is still available to buy. It is one of those times where I look at it and think, should I drink this? Because the time's going to come when there's not going to be any of it left. So should I be drinking it? And so far, every single time I've asked that question, the answer that I've come up with is yes, it should be drunk. Just think those people that made that whiskey, how upset they would have been if when they were making it, when they were putting all that effort and all that craft into it, at the end of the day, if nobody ever drank it. Now, you could argue, but it'd be nice to have some pass over to the next generation. And I can understand people thinking that. I've had five children. I'd love them to experience some of the things that I've experienced. But then again... Why should they? I've got as much right to that whiskey as they have. So given the opportunity, I'll drink it. And you know something, I'll tell them what it was like. Now, we talk about Imperial um, Distillery in this this interview. And I'm just checking a few details in, in the book that I've got here. Because I was unsure at the time. The origin of the name 
is that it is named in the year of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. It closed in the year 2000, but it was established back in 1897. And the original building did have an enormous imperial gilt crown on top of the Mortings kiln. And I have tasted this whiskey in the past. I was very fortunate in as much as one of my customers, bless their hearts, gave me a bottle of, of Imperial when they came back from a trip to Scotland once. That was in June 2009. It was um, a Gordon MacPhail bottling of an Imperial distilled in 1991, but bottled in 2008 at 43%. ABV, light amber colour, mid-width legs, well-spaced, long and slow. Of course, these notes are only my perception of it. The nose, despite its delicate quality, was a very gentle orange peel, a mace. Typically no peat or iodine, not fruity, but it was crisp. A slight smell of a substance known as duraglit to it. The taste, immediate mouthfeel. Not smooth, but balanced, so the, the edginess of it wasn't offensive. Had slight oiliness to it, giving it a mid-length finish. The foretaste was primarily licorice, with the citric notes coming afterwards and spiciness on the aftertaste. Very small amount of mustiness, with a residual cereal quality. Mid-sweet, hint of aniseed and the taste and the nose match together really well. But anyway, let's have a listen to that interview. John, we're at the Wee Dram Fest Bakewell. I don't know where to begin. You've got some lovely whiskies here, and the common answer is, well, try all of them. There's no way I can do that. No way whatsoever. Which whiskey that we've got here would you recommend? Uh, well, I'd recommend them all. Oh, here we are <laughs> yeah, but, again. I, but I would say that, wouldn't I? You would do. But, um, we've got two very good expressions from Ben Roma, which are Gordon and MacPhail's own distillery. Right. I mean, we, we do bottle um, a lot of whiskies. In the Connoisseur's Choice range, we do about 70 different distilleries. That's our flagship, the Ben Roma 10-year-old, and that's our peak smoke edition. Uh, this is very yeah, this is an interesting one in our secret stills the distillery will sell us the, the liquid for this but we can't actually put the distillery name on it so that's why it comes under the secret stills but we do give you some pointers to where the distillery is All right. if you know which distillery is in Old Meldrum then you know which uh, distillery and the company are quite pleased for us to do that we passed that by them and they said fine yes they, they'll allow us to do it but, um, so what are these single cask expressions? Th this is, yes, this is a single cask, just one cask used. It's a first fill American hogshead. It's 23 years old right. and, uh, and a beautiful whiskey to boot as well. Now, so you've got Ben Romac here, which is your own distillery. Yes, yes. Still currently producing. It was, it, it, it was actually owned by Diageo, United Distillers. They closed it in 1983. 
Gordon and Macphail purchases in the mid nineties, and it started producing again in 1998. Right. So we've just come up to ten years. So that's that's the company's flagship, Ben Roman, ten years. That's that's fantastic. If people want to get hold of that, how easy is it to get hold of? Uh, only through independents, good independent merchants. We're a family company, so. Um, we haven't got money to throw at Tesco's and, and millions of pounds for listings. So it's good independent wine merchants like the Weed Ram. Like the Weed Ram. And what about, can you get it direct from yourself? Do you have a website? Uh, we have a big retail shop in Elgin. The company started as grocers, like all the big... All the whiskey dynasties nearly all started as grocers. Johnny Walker was a grocer. Yeah, absolutely. Arthur Bell was a grocer. So Gordon and MacPhail started as grocers and then they, they specialised into malt whiskey. Right. And we have a big retail shop in South Street in Elgin and you can buy all these. We, and my colleague here, we are the wholesale side. We deal with Adrian and people like that. And we sure. But the retail shop is available and you can buy all, all Gordon and MacPhail products online at Gordon and MacPhail's. Now you've also got another whiskey at the end there, which I, I must try, which is the Imperial. Yes. Now the Imperial is not so easy to get hold of anymore. It isn't, no. It's it's what is called a mothball distillery. It's not producing and there's there's doubt whether it will ever reopen again. Yeah. That that's the future. Like we, we don't know yet. But Imperial is a lovely whiskey. It's been mothball for quite some time, yeah. hasn't it? Uh, very large stills Imperial. And the problem is when you start production, you make a lot of whiskey, or you don't make any at all. That's right. that's one of the that's one of the drawbacks with Imperial. Big stills produce a lot of whiskey in a run. Why is it called Imperial? Uh, it, it opened in Victoria's um, Queen Victoria's coronation. Yeah, no. Um, Diamond Jubilee or something, something like some, yeah. don't quote me on that no, just okay. read up but that's why it was called Imperial I mean, I've heard a legend that yeah. on one of the stills they actually had a crown yes they, did. Uh, they had a big, big crown outside the distillery but uh, uh, after a fire that got destroyed yeah but um John, I'd love to try some. Would that be okay? That would be fine. Have you got your glass? Now, for it the record, I was going to say, it's car strength. It's 1997, 62.7% ABV. Yes, unchill filtered. So as it should be. As it should. John, thank you ever so much. No problem. Now, last week's episode, I spoke to Andy and Drew from Whiskey Blender. I've been on their site, their website again recently and I've been in contact with them about a few of the things um, that came up during that interview and some of the feedback that I've got from listeners. For example, one person wanted to know why they didn't put down the names of the distilleries um, on their website for the whiskey that they're using, their stock. And their response to me was basically that um, they felt is actually better done blind. The idea of telling you what distilleries the whiskey came from could actually be misleading, that people would read that and fall more into the stereotype of that distillery rather than the tasting notes. They did assure me that they are very careful to select whiskies that do actually blend together with each other really well. But the thing I actually wanted to bring up was that I hadn't realised at the time that 
as well as being able to blend the whiskey and buy the whiskey, you can actually buy gift tokens. Now, one of the things about doing a podcast that I really do enjoy is the excuse it gives me to talk to people about whiskey and about the the ventures that they're starting up. Last week, I talked to the people, Angie and Drew, from behind whiskeyblender.com. The week before that, I was able to talk about this lovely new distillery venture opening up in Canada. And this week is no exception. This week, I've managed to talk to Paul Curry in the Lake District with news of a distillery about to open there. Just another part of a group of English distilleries that are opening. Paul, so nice to talk to you. Yeah, I, a pleasure I, to speak to you, Jim. I want to ask you a question to start off with. It's got nothing to do with whiskey whatsoever, but just my <laughs> own p- pure curiosity. What, what's the weather like where you are at the moment? <laughs> it's very, very windy. <laughs> when this has been recorded is the day of the hurricane. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, must, I was looking out my window and it's just so blustery. And I, I know I'm not a million miles from you, but I should think you're most likely getting it a bit worse than I am. Um, yeah, and just to make that clear for people, where actually are you at the moment? No, I'm currently actually in Scotland, which has ah. been which has been incredibly windy today. Yeah, so even closer to the eye of the storm. <laughs> yes, exactly. But but normally, <laughs> anyway, not... I'm, I'm I'm nice and sheltered out of the wind, so life is good. <laughs> normally, you're not in Scotland, though. Is this right? Your venture that that we're going to talk about isn't based in Scotland so much. No, it's actually in Cumbria, which um, interestingly used to be part of Scotland. You know that? Until right. about the 13th, 14th century. It's uh, very much a Celtic area. So I guess if you redrew the border a little further south, it would still be part of Scotland. Right. But Cumbria. Um, okay. Now I must like, put my foot in it now and say this is what my children might better know as, as Beatrix Potterland, that sort of an area. Is that right? That's right. Well, it's famous for Beatrix Potter. It's famous for Wordsworth and all the poets. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's most famous for being a very beautiful place in terms of its lakes and, and fells. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it is actually, after London, the most visited place in the UK. And soon, maybe, it'll also become famous for a product you're, you're going to be producing there. That's what? right. Well, uh, the Lakes Malt should be born next year. And um, it'll be the first whiskey from Cumbria, the first legal whiskey from there right. uh, since the 19th century. Right. So that's quite an achievement. No, so when when do you think it's going to start? You said we, in a year. Is that going to be when it starts distilling, or whether it's going to be on the market? Well, no, we should be up and running distilling by next summer. Right. Um, and we're, we're lucky that we found some fantastic buildings there, which used to be a Victorian model farm. And um, because the buildings exist, that obviously shortens the time in terms of getting our act together to start production. Mm-hmm. So we, we should be up and running by next summer. Okay, well, Paul, tell us a little bit about this this project you, that you've got there. I mean, what sort of a distillery is it going to be? What what sort of stills are you using? Yeah, it, it'll be it, it'll be fairly small. I mean, probably slightly above the micro level, but fairly small. I mean, the total capacity will be around a quarter of a million liters a year, and I guess we'll probably start off making around a hundred thousand. Um, it's in old farm buildings, so it looks very distillery like. Actually, it's about four hundred yards from Bassenthwaite Lake. 
So we're between Keswick and Cockermouth, for those of you who know the lakes. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very accessible, but in a very beautiful location. And um, in terms of the, uh, the, the, the whiskey itself, will be the water is fairly peaty there. It's you know, similar to Scotland coming off the fells. So that'll help in terms of the taste. The stills will be relatively small. Um, and, I mean, as you, you may know, I was involved starting Aaron 15 years ago with my father. Right. And um, we will probably have fairly similar stills to Aaron in terms of shape, which were actually based on Macallan originally. So you're saying the water coming there is, is quite peaty, but you, you didn't say anything there about actually peating the barley or anything like that. Yeah, we, we will be peating the barley. I mean, I, the, the, the intention is to have a fairly lightly peated whiskey, so it's not going to be a Lafroy, um, but it, it, it won't be completely unpeated. And right. then we may, as with other smaller distillers, actually looking at doing some runs of a peated malt mm. in the future. But the, the main product will be relatively unpeated. And you, you're saying, again, going back to the water, the water's going to be um, running over peat, so you're going to be using that local water. Is there other local ingredients you're going to be tapping into as well? Or? Well, there's some local barley grown, so where possible we'll, we'll try to get hold of that. But um, it probably won't be 100% of what we'll use. And, uh, of course, making whiskey, there's not too much else apart from the yeast. So mm. and you have the magic of the stills, and, of course, the, the atmosphere is critical for the maturing. Yeah. But as we all know, one of the, the great flavor compounds that comes into, into whiskey is from the wood. Uh, what thoughts have you got about wood management, and where's the maturation going to be taking place? Well, as you rightly say, it is absolutely critical. So we'll we'll try very hard to get the best possible wood we can. Um, I mean, it'll be in line with most Scotch whisky distillers, generally bourbon and, and sherry. And we will try some experimentation with with some other wood. Um, we'll have we've got a warehouse on site, which is great. Um, that'll last probably for three or four, maybe five years, and then we'll have to find some other local um, local warehousing nearby. But there's that shouldn't be a problem. So it will be matured in the lakes. That's that's lovely. I'm a, I'm a quite a bit of a believer, I think, actually, in local maturation. Um, not that I've got much against centralised maturation. I do actually feel that it should be something that is, you know, declared on the label. Um, mm. So I'm, I'm quite pleased to hear that you're going to be going for this this local maturation. How much of a local character will this whisky have, or what sort of local character you're aiming towards? Well, it's the wonderful thing about whiskey that it is unique in terms of every location. And I think the, the Lakes malt will be similarly unique. I mean, precisely what it's like. There's the excitement coming our way in the, in the next years, as, as we can see how it turns out. So it's, um, it, it will, I think, be something different. You, know, it's the way you, you couldn't say that this is precisely like any other malt that's produced now. But what you, how can I say this tactfully, what you don't have that Scotland has is a, is a whole load of history that goes into the you know the the whole marketing scheme of of the the whiskey they produce how will you relate to that how what's going to be the market, marketing angle for your Well product? interestingly there there is a lot of history the I and mean, I've delved into the the record books and until the the end of the 19th century there were many whiskey stills in Cumbria and particularly in the um, the 18th century there was a lot of smuggling across the border and it was a hive of activity. I mean, I guess just similar to Scotland could hide away the stills, 
because of the landscape of, of Cumbria, exactly the same, the same was going on. Mm. So it does have, interestingly, a very long whiskey heritage, which we're now starting again. So you, you'll be referring to that in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say as well, from what you've told me so far, that you know, with it being an old model farm building, small still, local water, local maturation, it's going to have that relationship there already anyway, isn't it, within the local area, and, and some of that history will, will come through, I'm sure. Well, yeah. exactly. When you go there, it really feels like some of you'd make whiskey. It's, um, you know, as, if, as you know, the lakes yourself, it looks mm. very much like Scotland. Yeah. And um, it, it just makes sense that whiskey would be made there. But there is a temptation there, isn't it? So you've, you've mentioned already there's a connection with Aaron. There is that proximity to Scotland. Is there a risk that what you're going to be producing is something that's too much in the Scotch style? Or will you have enough uniqueness to be apart from that? Or do you just not see that as being a problem? No, I think we'll have our own unique style. Um, I mean, there'll be similarities to other malt whiskies in Scotland, but I think the big thing going for us is this Cumbrian brand of Lakes Malt, where we're the only whiskey from that region. Hmm. And that really does set us apart as, as something a little bit special. I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it? There does seem to be a, uh, an emergence of an actual English market with St. George and St. Austell, and, you know, there's, there's some more coming as well. In Suffolk as well, Adnams are, are doing it. Aren't they? Yes, that's that's right. Yeah, um, and I've heard rumour of, of one beginning up in London as well. Mm. Is that something you think is a good thing for the industry, having a, an English whiskey coming up, or do you think? Yeah, it in... I, I think that also worldwide, as you probably know, there are distilleries appearing in many different countries, and I, I think it is a good thing. It, you know, it refreshes the whole industry, and there's interest in taking in consumers trying whiskies from different locations. Yeah. I think where you know, we need to be a little bit wary is, is trying to open up distilleries simply everywhere because um, you know, the climatic conditions, etc., do make a difference, I think. And um, yeah. there is a, there's a limit to where you could place a distillery which is going to produce a good malt. Yeah, I mean, that's both, that might be a, a potential problem. I mean, I'm aware that, for example, Cavalam and Cavalan Distillery opened. They were able, through a process of wood management and climate, mature whiskey very quickly and that gave them a bit of a market advantage in as much as they could get their product matured and out on the market quite quickly yeah. you are not going most likely won't be able to do that with as much speed as they did how do you what's your strategy of 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 coping for those first few years whilst your stock's maturing uh, it's obviously a, a very big point when you start a distillery. I mean, our, our main strategy is to focus on a on a tenure in the future. So we're here for the long haul. Luckily, I'm a reasonably young guy still, so I plan to be around in 10 years' time. But, of course, there are um, many things we can do in the meantime instead of special bottlings and trying different woods, etc. between now and then. Hmm. And, um, of course, there's a big um, collectible market now of, of different bottlings as we go forward. We're also, um, we've launched a founders club um, where we're setting aside the first 100 casks that we ever produce for members of that. And they'll be bottled every year up to 10 years. So there'll be a collectible set from one year to 10 years, um, which I think also will be of great interest to, to consumers. Right. And apart from that, we're also going to be making a gin. So... Um, that obviously you can sell straight away. And that is, of course, a very English product, isn't it? The uh, the gin. 
Um, and yeah, you're quite right. You can say that again. And lastly, in, in Cumbria, uh, yeah, the, the, the Cumbrian fells are full of junipers, so it is a, a very appropriate place to make gin as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess the other important thing, Tim, is we'll, we'll have a, a, a visitor centre there, not surprisingly. Um, the lakes is a huge tourist area, and that will be a very important part of our business. So going back to the Founders Club then, if somebody wants to be part of the Founders Club, what, what's the commitment to that? How do they do it? Well, the cost until the end of this year is 495 If they go to our website, which is lakesdistillery.com, um, they can get all the details about that and, and sign up. But it is, a, as we say, you often have these lines of once in a lifetime, but there's, it's only once that the first production comes out of the distillery. And that's yeah. what the whole idea of the Founders Club is. We are beginning to break up a little bit on on our connection. I'm going to hope that this is to do with the weather and it it will pass over. Um, let's just see how it goes. At the moment, okay. At the moment, it's not too bad. Um, and so, sometimes this happens and it sort of heals itself, which is which is good. Yeah. No, that was awful. <laughs> Let's, are you hearing me okay? <laughs> I, I lost the last line. I can hear you okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, you've you just come back. I thought you'd um, been invaded by the Daleks for a minute then. <laughs> keep, keep trying. I mean, you're coming and going a little bit, but let's, let's keep trying. Let's keep trying, yeah. Paul, what, what was the inspiration for you to get involved in this? Well, um, a couple of years ago, I was going through the lakes again, and um, I thought many times this would be a great place to have a distillery I and mean, it, it looks so much like Scotland and I had been tipped off by some people I know there in terms of the whiskey heritage of the area so that's when I started looking for a site and uh, it's not easy in the Lake District it took about nine months to find the right site and we got very lucky with with this old model farm we've got and then of course because there's a Lake District National Park planning is very difficult and it took us the best part of another nine months to secure the planning for it so it's been a fair haul to get to where we are now, but it's it's now very exciting that next year we can be up and running. There's there is um a question that I must ask you, and that is you are close to Scotland, but actually you're just over the border. Now, because the fact you're just over the border, I'm supposing that's going to affect the way that you ha you relate with the SWA. Inasmuch as that at no point can you really be said that you're producing scotch because of your geographical location. Now, the knock on effect to that is that you may actually have a bit more freedom in, use, for example, wood type usage and, and uh, distillation process and stuff like that to allow you to experiment more than you most likely would have been able to if you were the other side of the border. Are you going to take advantage of that and, and experiment to your heart's content? Possibly. I mean, the, the main, um, for the main, we want to stay in the traditional way of doing things, you know, as, as Scotch whiskey. But yes, I mean, there's, there's the point that we could try some experimentation. But really, you know, the, the core um, product we want to do in the traditional way. I must say, I think that does make sense, to be honest, because there is a big difference between Scotch and bourbon, for example, and some of those differences have evolved because it's what suits the climate. And of course, the climate you've got is going to be very similar to Scotland. And it does seem to make sense if they've developed a way of making whiskey that suits that climate, that you're 
particular method is going to be quite similar. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we'll have traditional shapes of stills and every plant traditional word. It'll be it'll be very much a, a Scottish operation in the way we do it. Hmm. What's the what's the distribution going to be like for your whiskey? Have you have you got as far as thinking about that yet? Well, the big advance we have in Cumbria is there's a captive market on our doorstep, which is really quite big, you know, particularly with tourists. So um, we've got um, distribution pretty much sorted out locally, uh, which is a key thing. And then, um, to be honest, for the national, international, we've uh, we've yet to sort that out. I mean, we've got to get some products first. Mm. But um, you know, I know plenty of people around the globe who uh, I'm sure I can persuade to get interested in what we're doing. Okay, what about the um i mean we, we sort of touched on this earlier on i know we were talking about the style of the whiskey and and sort of tapping into heritage and things like that have you got as far as as bottle design label design total image and all that sort of business or that is that still very much on the drawing board um yes so to a degree if you look on our website which is uh, lakesdistillery.com our branding is now in very much in place which we're very pleased with so the Lakes Malt brand um, is is there, and that'll be the basis of our labels. In terms of exactly what bottle shape and precisely the way the label turns out, we've yet to finalise that. But the but the core brand we've now developed, and we're, we're very happy with it. Paul, can I ask you a few personal questions? Yeah, please carry what, on. What's been the biggest challenge for you in doing this? Um, I think I mean I was talking about this just before, the hardest thing, um, which may surprise some people in different parts of the country, was getting this planning. Because the, the Lake District is infamous for turning down everything. Hmm. And um, we actually had the planning officers were recommending refusal of our activity, um, which seems extraordinary given the benefits I think we can, we can give to the local people and the local economy. But um, fortunately, the committee, in their wisdom, unanimously voted in our favour. But that was far and away the biggest challenge. I think actually getting the whole thing up and running now, by comparison, would be quite straightforward. Yeah. Do you think, was there any sort of key thing that persuaded them to, to say yes? I think there was there's huge local support. I mean, we had um, many, many letters of support, which doesn't often happen, you know, in, in this situation. And um, I'm always touched every time I'm there um, meeting everybody that, Without exception, um, there's great excitement locally about what we're doing. I think, one, because we can create um, something new in the economy there. I mean, it's very dependent upon tourism. It's not the, the wealthiest part of the country. And to have another another industry that can create jobs and be another attraction for tourists is, is a great thing. But I'm also getting the feeling from what you were saying earlier about the, the fact that it is in a farm, you've got small, a small still, local source stuff that it's not going to be a big industry eyesore anyway. It's going to possibly look like a, a natural cottage industry type appearance. Yeah, absolutely. And the, I mean, we'll get some pictures of the site up on our website pretty soon and, and everyone can see them. But um, I mean, we've got a fair number of buildings, but they're, it's very much that cottage industry feel. I mean, it's an old farm, so you know, that's, it's, it looks exactly like a farm. So that's the biggest obstacle then, has been planning permission. What, what's been the, the greatest reward for you? Um, it was probably the moment they said yes. <laughs> 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 and um, no, I, I think the greatest reward is, as I was just touching on this before, is the local support. Because you know, uh, you know, I'm not from Cumbria originally, and I think um, they might have seen me as some outsider 
that uh, and be suspicious what I was up to. But um, genuinely, there's huge warmth and, and interest in what we're doing, and that's 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 great to see. And what about support that you've had from other people within the industry? Is, is has that been a help, or are you finding? Yeah, it's, it's been great. I mean, you know, particularly on the distilling side, um, the there's there's great interest and great help for what we're doing. It's I mean, you'd be probably familiar with the fact that the whiskey industry is a very friendly place, mm. and there's been no exception in, in terms of doing this, even when it's uh, you know an English distillery, as it were. So your father was involved in the industry. You're yeah, I mean, he's in now um, in his late eighties, but um, he's still actually working. Would you believe it? Um, you know, he's, he's still got an interest in the in the drinks industry. Yeah. But um, he spent most of his working life with Seagrams and then Pernod Ricard. So you know, when I was a uh, a young lad growing up, I was surrounded by whiskey. Now, I, I may be overstepping the mark here, but I thought I heard the sound of children in the background. Is is it likely that this is going to be something that then passes on to the next generation, or is that something that hasn't reached maturity yet? <laughs> we have to see. <laughs> I mean, my, my kids are in their teens or younger, and whether they can be persuaded to get interested in whiskey, we will have to see. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, mind you, if they're that young, you can actually start brainwashing them quite early as well, can't you? So... <laughs> yes, you're quite right. <laughs> it's cheap labour. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a nice thought, you know, when you create a new um, a new whiskey brand like this Lakes Malt, that um, you know it really should be here in 150 years' time, and that's you know, that's a wonderful thought. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, that is a lovely thought. Um, it's a really boring, geeky question, I'm afraid, but. People often talk about the the process of making the whiskey, and from what you've said, I've I've got a fair idea of what that's going to be like. As we've said before a few times now about using the local resources, and then you've got the still. We haven't talked too much about whether this is going to be a direct fired still or whether it's going to be steam fired. No, whether the whole process of that. Um, we can talk about wood management, we can talk about yeast, we can talk about peating levels and all this sort of business. But the thing that people don't often talk about is, well, what happens with the byproducts afterwards, the spent water and all this sort of business. And I would gather that if you're in the Lake District, they're going to have concerns about waste materials. Have you got all that sorted out or, or what are yeah. your plans for that? No, very much. I mean, um... We plan to be as green and eco as possible, actually, and be a real um, exemplar of sustainability, as I say. Mm. But um, I mean, on that, we—I uh, mean, I'll, I'll come back to the waste products in a minute. But we're we're putting in solar panels. We're going to recycle the heat into the rest of the buildings. We'll have a closed-loop system in terms of the water to reduce the water use. And then um, the draft, of course, will will be giving to or selling to local farmers as feed. And then the um, the, the rest of the waste products also will be will be given to farmers as fertilizer, mm -hmm. so um, it's it will be a, a pretty green operation. Yeah, I'm just I'm got stuck there for a moment when you said about solar panels because listening to the wind outside and you must likely get in it as well. I'd have thought wind turbines would have been. Well, we're, we're looking into wind turbine as well. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think we may have a combination of both. I mean, it did worry me because it, it rains a lot in the in the lakes as to whether solar panels operate properly, but um, I'm assured that they do. So. Yeah, that yeah. will actually create pretty much all the electricity we need to use on the site, which is which is great. So, yeah, Paul, this sounds 
absolutely wonderful. Um, when you do start distilling and that first product comes off the off the out of the still comes possibly online, that is going to be a day of celebration. I'm sure. Is that something you're actually planning for already? How you're going to mark that day? Oh, absolutely, and I hope you can be there as well, Jim. Oh, I'd love to be there. <laughs> or, or was that was that um, a bit too obvious then? Was it? <laughs> <laughs> One way of getting the invites. No, you'll be on that list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you could have said then was, um, "Don't even think about it, Jim." And I want that bit cut out of the podcast. But you were gracious. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yeah. Are are you again another strange question really. Are you getting all this process documented? Yes, and you know, I'm very aware of um the, the interest will be and I hope worldwide in, in what we're doing. And so absolutely, I mean we've we're planning to film the process of you know renovating the buildings and getting all the stills made etc. Um you know, and there are moments like when the stills are delivered and then Obviously, when the whole thing's put together and the pipe work in, and then obviously the the first day of production, these are great moments. So mm. uh, we plan to have them all recorded for posterity. Oh, that is such a good news. That is such good news. I mean, I love reading history books about whiskey, but of course, when a lot of distilleries were first formed, there wasn't the potential there to record image and sound as there is now. So it's so good to hear that uh, that you're doing that especially as I am certain that what you're doing is going to go on for hundreds of years and there's no real reason why it shouldn't. Well, it's nice of you to say, and that's, that's, yeah. that's the case. Well, Paul, I wish you luck with this. And thank you ever so much for talking to me. Great. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Now, this is the point where this week's episode was due to finish. But I was really fortunate enough in being able to have a phone chat with Dominic Roscoe, who had some news about World Whiskey Review. And it seemed a good idea at the time to talk to him about that and very quickly get that into this week's episode. And that's what I've done. Now, it was a phone chat. As always, there were problems. You know, those technical problems I mentioned earlier on at the beginning of the episode those technical problems that not really a technical but more to do with there being a stupid middle-aged man trying to handle technology way beyond him even though that technology is antiquated that sort of problem the quality the audio quality of this isn't brilliant and i've not had time to adjust it in any way whatsoever but what dominic says is worth listening to so please listen to it please battle through the poor audio quality and listen to the wonderful words this man has got to say now i'm also going to leak out some it to you we didn't only talk about world whiskey review we talked about a whole load of other things i didn't record all of them because some of them was just conversation between the two of us it was a lovely evening of whiskey talk really enjoyed it and my thanks goes out to Dominic for that some of the other conversation was recorded and I'm going to be putting that out soon think possibly next week's podcast and that is going to be about tasting notes and what Dominic had to say about that was was 
really, really worth listening to. It was music to my ears. So interesting, so wise. And I'd really strongly recommend you tuning in later to listen to that. But anyway, here's what Dominic had to say about World Whiskey Review. People, so nice to talk to you. Now, people who listen to this podcast can listen to it at any time, so time relevance doesn't really fit in. But at this present time where we're recording this, it's also a special time for you, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, I uh, write and edit and uh, put a lot of time into uh, World Whiskey Review, and you're calling me just as the second one that had to go live. Uh, uh, we're, we're hours, minutes probably away from that. And it's a very, very important thing for me because I put a lot of time, there's no money for me in this, but I, I love it. And, and as a journalist, starting with a, a blank canvas and painting a picture is exactly what you do. And you're not sure how good it's going to be until you see the finished results. So uh, for me, this is as exciting a moment to speak to me as it gets for me, yeah, without yeah. help. So what actually is World Whiskey Review? Uh, right, okay. Um, basically, World Whiskey Review was um, uh, something I, I, I... When I was the editor of Whiskey Magazine, ten years ago I took over Whiskey Magazine and I had uh, the Dave Brooms and the Michael Jacksons and all these great... Charlie McLean's, all these great writers from Scotland or writing about Scotland. So I, I wanted to expand uh, Whiskey Magazine out of traditional territories. I, I see editing a magazine a bit like being a football manager. You, you look at your team, your squad, and you try and strengthen it. And what I brought to it was a more globalized view. And when I went fi- uh, freelance five years ago, um, you, you get invited to press trips with eight journalists, and there's three whiskey magazines worldwide, so what do you do? So what I thought I'd do is start getting on a plane. Thank you, Ryan and ECJ. I, I started getting on a plane and um, just going into Europe, and uh, they'd put me up for a night. I'd pay for my flight, and then I'd sell the feature a couple of places, maybe, and make a bit of money. But basically, I built up a a stock of world contacts, uh, mainly in Europe at that time, but um, I got talking to John Glazer at Compass Box, and we, re- we, we both agree that no matter how important the SWA, the Scotch Whiskey Association, is, there's nobody representing smaller distillers, nobody representing um, uh, non-Scottish distillers, nobody representing non-whiskey distillers, gin, vodka, whatever. And it would be great to have uh, an ind- independent distillers association. And my interest was running a magazine that just was a forum for all these people, because they couldn't afford PR. We could just run their stories for them, and I'd take a, a, a percentage from all their subsidies and, and make a living off it, or at least a contribution to my freelance business. That hasn't quite happened, but the passion for world whiskey, my uh, association with distillers all over the world, I, I now spend my free time writing... <laughs> Uh, the World Whiskey Review, which is just basically anything but Scotland, Ireland, Canada, Japan, or America. So it's all the territories that aren't represented elsewhere. And it, that's all it is. It's it, it stories about distillers that are making whiskey in not whiskey places. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's not saying you've got anything against Scotland, Ireland, America, Japan, or anything like that. It's more to do with the fact that you've how can I say, you've discovered this lovely, rich scene, developing scene, of things that are also worth talking about and sharing. 
Yeah, I'd say a few things there. Firstly, I don't think anybody um, would uh, fail to understand, if they've read anything I've ever done, would fail to understand my love of bourbon. Uh, When I went to uh, Whiskey Magazine, it wasn't covered well, and I brought that to it. I made the title much more global, and and I specialised in bourbon, and I I absolutely love um, uh, Kentucky and its whiskies. I'm not putting that second to Scotland, though. Scotland is the big daddy of whiskey. It deserves to be. It always will be. I'm proud that I've spent 10 years of my life being treated uh, like something like I'm special, when actually the guys who are showing me around and telling me what they do are really special, and I'm just lucky. And that's the absolute truth. Um, I come from a, 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 a third-generation Irish background. Um, I have huge uh, Irish things. So, Absolutely not. Wouldn't be critical of any of those five territories. Those five territories, I didn't mention Canada and Japan, but those five territories are there for a purpose and a reason and they deserve to be. And they always will be. But I just think, hey, let's just bring more. If we can find whiskies anywhere in the world that stops people drinking uh, opposition drinks, if you like, uh, other drinks, and they come to whiskey, then really, um, that's what it's all about. So, no, not to the denigration of those traditional territories at all. More to the point, um, what we're seeing is, uh, is an emergence of just different ways of approaching it. And as a journalist, that's easier because nobody else is doing it really. Jim Murray is the only person. Jim Murray is ahead of me on this. Jim Murray is the greatest whiskey writer in the world for a reason, and he's, it's because he's been everywhere. And when I went to Tasmania and found three distilleries he hadn't been to, I, I rang him up. Because I was so proud. And he's become a very good friend to me, but nobody bothers because they're not being paid to be bothered. Although I do see more coverage of World Whiskey now that we're doing World Whiskey Review. If that sounds a bit arrogant, yeah, okay, it's a bit arrogant. Do you think, though, that this publicity and giving the world whiskey is also going to have um, a possible impact on distribution for these companies? It's a very good question. Um, I'd like to think so. I think, you know, I, I, I have an association with whiskey shops, so I, I, I'm not interested in retailing. So when David Baker at Bakery Hill in Australia near Melbourne says to me, um, would you like a pallet of whiskies that you can sell uh, in Europe? I say no. Bottom line is, if he sends one whiskey to Europe, it costs him a lot of money to make it, and then he has to pay all the charges of bringing it up here. He has to pay all the sort of tax and import. It's just not worth it. So... If he's talking to me about one whiskey, there's no point. If my magazine helps, or my e-zine, helps uh, bring people to those whiskies and there's a demand for a case or a pallet, then suddenly it all becomes practical. So the distribution channel will develop. And I really hope I'm on that journey. I hope we're playing our part in bringing world whiskey uh, around the world. But I'd say another thing. Actually, I went down to Australia uh, a month ago and they don't care. Um, I, I used to write about World Whiskey in Australia, and it was almost patronising. It was like we had to have it in the United Kingdom because we are whiskey. And although I didn't mean to, I spoke to them as if I was doing them a favour. You go down there and talk to them now, and they just, in front of them is Asia and Africa. Hmm. They look across to South America. They're not interested in trying to be on the doorstep of the very people who are doing whiskey better than anybody in the world at half the price. Because at the bottom line, uh, a bottle of world whiskey from Australia is going to be a retailing here 60, 70, 80, and 90 pounds. So there's no point. So they don't care. They can't make enough whiskey to 
satisfy these new emerging markets in those parts of the world. And so the whisky axis is changing. And I'm not saying Scotch is being moved off. It's not, because it's hugely dominant. The reality is that because of the demand for uh, Scotch worldwide, nobody can meet it. So it's opening niche opportunities closer to home for world whisky. And that's what I'm trying to reflect. I'm trying to stop. And that's the great thing about the Internet is that I, I'm not publishing a magazine that goes on sale in the UK. In this case, I do do that. But I'm also online writing to anybody who cares to look in. And some of my best friends now, and my wife finds this very funny, that you talk about friends that you've never met. But people I talk to a lot about whiskey in Israel, America, South Africa, wow, Australia, wow, you know, hmm. that's what we're doing with whiskey. Yeah, yeah. No, I can identify with that. That's certainly one of the experiences I've had through whiskey is the world has become a very small place in a yeah. way because there's that shared thing. And I also feel that this is one of the wonderful things about whiskey which makes it so magical is that, as we all know, whiskey is made from a very few physical ingredients. Yeah. Um, I think it's made from other ingredients that aren't physical. Um, such as character and personality and, and things like this. But this is one of the things I think that, that you're helping pull out for us all to understand. It's only made from a very limited number of physical ingredients, yet the variety that can be produced, the number of, of flavor profiles that can be produced around the world um, is absolutely incredible. Absolutely right. I, I, I think that um, this is exactly it. I think that what's happening is we haven't started asking, because it's been so Scotch-dominated, and as I say, I've said to you before, I'll say again, I'm not being critical, but Australian will say to you, if you put 12 years old on your bottle, but don't say the size of the cask, it's meaningless. Mm. Because maturation is all to do with... Um, size, but it's more than that. These countries have different uh, uh, temperatures, different extremes of temperatures, different uh, humidities, different um, uh, economic, uh, sorry, um, temperature pressures. There's lots and lots of factors that are never talked about in Scotland, because why would you? It's fairly uniform in Scotland. So they're bringing up questions. We've never really talked about what constitutes peat. Australia doesn't have any trees that are similar to Scotland. And even within Scotland, there's a huge difference between what grows on an island and what grows on the mainland. So the peat's very different. And when you look at McMyra, where a lot of the peats come from under the Baltic Sea and it's very salty, it's different. The oak. Oak is a huge, huge family. What happens in America? Like, we know this. White oak and red oak, uh, 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 Quercus alba, Quercus rovus, very, very different things. So imagine how different it is with Swedish oak or Australian oak. And so, and in fact, Australian oak's porous, so actually they can't use it, but, or but they can't use it to their own extent. So there are lots and lots of things. Nobody said how you have to dry your barley or juniper, Swedish way. So we aren't even touching some of the subjects, unless this is where I want to go. I just want to mine these areas and bring the world and say to the Americans, the Americans, you know, I get it all the time on, you know, I review an Amrit, and they say, how long is it mature for? Three years. Three years, it can't be whiskey. Have you mm. tasted it? Taste it blind in a tasting, and then tell me that that's not a great whiskey. So let's just start questioning. The trouble with it is, 
is what you're actually questioning is the way it's always been done in Scotland, and they don't want you to like a whiskey at three or four. St. George's in Norfolk, five miles from my home, has just released its five-year-old. They, they're, they're ahead in maturation here in, in Scotland, but it's a problem for Scotland, really, because if you need to wait 12 years and other people can wait three, there's an issue there. But, but what you're saying is also right. It's not to do with age as such. It's to do with maturation. Absolutely. And I'm aware, for example, that distilleries such as Cavalan can produce a mature whiskey a lot quicker because of their climate and also the aspects of their wood management. Mm. But there's also that thing that I feel it's not just to do with speed, it's also to do with the character. Okay. I'm deliberately not saying quality, because I, I think that's a separate issue. But the character that can be given out from something that's matured quickly and something that matures slowly is also going to be different. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm saying it's not to do with quality. No, I, I totally agree with that. And I think, I think the big thing about this is, let's not take sides here. I can go into a supermarket and I can find a beautifully ripe, um, say, a banana. And two days later, it's gone completely black because it's matured far too quickly to suit supermarkets. And it hasn't grown naturally. It's had its, uh, uh, for whatever reason, it's had its speed uh, sped up and it's just rubbish. So let's look at Cavalan in 20 years because we may be producing lovely tasting Cavalana two or three years or four years or whatever it is now, but will it be sustained to 12? Arguably not. Mm. Don't know. But the thing is, will it? But should it? it? Well, maybe not. Because but, what they're producing is a whiskey that really that yeah. is, is to be drunk young. Yes, and that's fine. And I totally agree with you. It's all part, but this is all part of World Whiskey Review. This is the exciting thing of what I'm doing. I'm not saying Scotland's got it wrong or right, but what I am saying is there's a thousand years of molecular engineering in a glass of a single malt whiskey from Scotland. You add water to a Scotch whiskey and leave it three hours and it's going to have uh, developed, but it's going to be structurally in place. Do that to a lot of world whiskies and they've fallen apart. Now, you could say nobody sits there with three up for three hours with their whiskey, but if you're into... If you're into the kind of the whole understanding of the subject, I think there's a place for both. And I just think that we are on a journey here. We're going to ask questions that nobody's asking, and I don't know why they're not asking them. Uh, and immediately, well, I do actually, because immediately you get everybody's heckles up. But actually, I'm starting to get very, very uh, relaxed about this now, because I know that you know there are people making whiskey worldwide who understand that I'm trying to understand them properly and not trying to judge them against other, you know, other, other, other and they're unrelated. And we go back to the food conversation, you know, would you really try and compare fish and chips with sushi? Mm. No. So why are we trying to compare Japanese, or well, not Japanese whiskey, but um, uh, Taiwanese whiskey with, with fish and chips in Scotland, you know, deep fried supper? Mm. It's just, it's just not a comparison. And what you're giving us at the moment is just a quick taste of what people can expect from World Whiskey Review. I hope so. Yeah. I, I, I've got nine new interviews in the next issue. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's such a labour of love. I love it so much. And, and, and I love the fact that I get people from uh, Israel and South Africa. I don't mention these countries because I have these conversations nightly. 
And I just love the fact that some of these whiskies don't necessarily ever rise in these countries, but people are interested. And, it, and the backlash of this is that in South Africa, Mark Penelbury, he's called Whiskey Brother, is writing a piece on a South African distillery for the new issue of World Whiskey Review. So, and I, I've got Jason Pyle in America writing about single malts in America, because although I'm not writing about America, single malts in America is a story for me. Mm. It's just a great place to be. And you know, it's exciting. And I think it's going to grow and grow and grow. That's marvellous. Well, Dominic, it's coming out tonight. I'm looking forward to reading it. And thank you ever so much for talking to me about it. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of the More to Muse podcast. If you haven't heard them already, there is a back catalogue of other episodes available on iTunes. And if anybody wants to contact me, they can do so. My email address is jim at themaltedmuse.com. There's the website, www.themaltedmuse.com. And there's also Twitter, Twitter at themaltedmuse. So thank you again for listening. I hope you'll listen next week. And until then, thank you and goodbye.